I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest on Taiwan, we have with us my absolute favorite guest on the podcast, Dr. Seth Jones. So good to have you back. Andrew, you say that to all of your guests, but I'm honored. I'm honored that you say it to me. (laughs) All right. Well, you know you are at the very, very top. And thanks for being here, Seth, because you're just back from Taiwan, where you were part of a CSIS delegation that went to visit. And tell me, what did you find there? Well, it was fantastic. We saw Taiwan's national security leadership, as well as all of the major presidential candidates for January's election. We spent a good amount of time with President Tsai. And she tweeted about it. And she tweeted about it. She actually tweeted a picture of both Elliot Cohen and I and our most recent books. So hopefully that increased sales. I hope so, too. I mean, what a solid she did for you guys. Also visited at the end of it, Japan, which we may want to get to as well. There were a couple of things that I think struck me. One is that the Taiwan population and the government in the U.S., you know, there's a bit of uneasiness in that relationship right now. I think from the Taiwan perspective, there is this concern about whether the U.S. would be there in case of a Chinese invasion. When you're sitting in Taipei, you feel the Chinese presence. They're close. They've been buzzing the island, getting roughly within 24 nautical miles with fixed-wing aircraft. They've been sending drones in and around Taiwan's islands, Kinmen in Matsu. So you can feel sort of the pressure, pretty heavy disinformation campaigns on social media in Taiwan. But there is, interestingly, a declining percentage of the population in public opinion polls that believe the U.S. would actually send troops in case of a war. In one of the polls we looked at by the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation, only 36% believe the U.S. would dispatch forces to protect the island. And why is that the case, you might ask? It's a couple of things. Again, these are perceptions, so people can agree or disagree, but these are perceptions that came out pretty strongly. In 2021, those in Taiwan are very aware the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan and the government collapsed in the face of Taliban military offensive. In 2022, President Biden ruled out sending any U.S. troops to Ukraine, raising additional worries that they might not be there in case of a Chinese invasion. I mean, it's true that President Biden has stated several times that the U.S. would aid Taiwan in a crisis, but that clearly is not convinced a chunk of the population. On the U.S. side, I think there are lots of questions about whether Taiwan could defend itself in case of a Chinese invasion and whether the Taiwan population has the political will to fight, much like what we saw with the Ukrainians, which this leadership, including Zelensky, rallied to fight the Russians when they invaded in February 2022. The population rose up. Engineers and baristas suddenly were shooting rifles and stingers at Russian forces. Does Taiwan have that same kind of will to defend itself? Big question. So I think one issue that came out was this broader uneasiness that's on both sides. Where does the notion from the U.S. side come that Taiwan won't go full throttle the way the Ukrainians have in defending themselves. Where does that come from? Well, Taiwan's in a really interesting situation because it is not recognized as an independent country, does not have a seat at the United Nations. So what it means practically is that most countries not only don't recognize Taiwan, 
but also won't provide military training, won't conduct joint exercises with the Taiwan military. I mean, those kinds of things matter a lot. There is very limited U.S. training to Taiwan, primarily Marine Corps and some special operations forces. The U.S. does provide some weapon systems, but for everybody else in the world, most other countries, nobody wants to raise the ire of the Chinese government. And so what it means is Taiwan is in many ways isolated. And there are also some vulnerabilities you see that haven't been adequately fixed. For example, the electricity grid is barely functioning above just general levels. The communications network has been cut off, including over the past year. Internet services on some of Taiwan's islands like Matsu were out for several months. And this is the home of one of the greatest chip makers in the world. Yes, TSMC. So critical infrastructure is not an ideal situation. And I think what we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is if Taiwan were to be on the receiving end of a Chinese amphibious assault, they would take down the space networks, take down you know, offensive cyber operations. So that would impact the electricity grid, water, communications that would probably cut the fiber optic networks leaving the island. So it would be very difficult. And then if we can visually picture Ukraine, which borders NATO, once the Russians invade, that border with, say, Poland is open. So you can get weapons and other kinds of assistance fighters from outside, trainers into Ukraine. Taiwan's an island. If the shooting starts, you're not getting anything in easily. And not to mention, for Americans, Taiwan's very far away. Most people couldn't point it out on a map. And it's not on the border of NATO the way Ukraine is. So do they fear that the American people really don't care about them, won't come to their aid, don't want to engage with China on perhaps the issue that China is most spun up about? Well, I do think it's an open question. And I think that's where the situation stands right now is lots of questions from the U.S. standpoint about Taiwan resolve, lots of questions from the Taiwan standpoint about whether the U.S. would actually send troops. Because, Andrew, some of our war games that we've done on a Chinese invasion strongly indicate that if the U.S. joined the fight to defend Taiwan in the early hours of a Chinese invasion, it would be very difficult for China to control the entire island. But if there was a delay or the U.S. did not not participate in a fight, not just providing some assistance, but actually using maritime, air, or even land-based assets to defend Taiwan, it would probably not go well. You're talking about a defeat of the Taiwan military in that case. These are the war games that were done here by our colleague Mark Hansian, and it showed however the conflict goes when the United States enters, if the United States were to enter, it would be extremely bloody on all fronts for China, for the United States, for our allies, Japan, Korea, if they joined. It seems like a real mess, doesn't it? Yeah, which is why you really want to focus on deterring Chinese action. I mean, that really needs to be the focus of U.S. efforts, training, advising, assisting, not just the Taiwan military, but also its civilian population, and then arming it. And there are obviously other important components, including working with multilateral partners in the region to sanction the Chinese if that were to take place. Place, but you really want deterrence so you don't have to fight. So let's talk about deterrence for a minute. I'm sure you had this discussion with leaders in Taiwan. I know you can't characterize what they said, but what were some of the things that you and Dr. Cohen and others in our contingent that was over there, our cohort that was over there, what were you telling them? Well, one of the things that we told them was that they needed to improve their ability to defend themselves. So the U.S. can provide a range of assistance and can send weapons, but at the end of the day, Taiwan has to be able to defend itself. 
And what's interesting is if you look at the Ukraine example, which actually came up repeatedly in the first several hours and days of the Russian invasion, the U.S. and much of the West hesitated and watched to see how things would evolve. I think, frankly, most U.S. government assessments, both from the Joint Staff and the Office of the Secretary of Defense, as well as the U.S. intelligence community, DIA, CIA, assessed that the Russian military, in a matter of a few days, would overrun the Ukrainians. But they both got the Russian side wrong and the Ukrainian side wrong. Once it became clear that Ukraine was actually capable of defending itself, it had a leader in Zelensky that was able to stand up to Russia, then I think the aid came. So one clear message is that you have to show a willingness. So we talked about this to every candidate, every presidential candidate, and to the current Taiwan president, Tsai, that if Taiwan was to be invaded or the tension were to significantly increase, I think the West and Asian countries would see to what degree Taiwan and ask to what degree Taiwan would be willing to defend itself and fight for its own homeland. And I think that's what turned the tide in Ukraine. What's the best thing that the Taiwan population can do to deter Chinese aggression with their own actions, forgetting about military? Can they ratchet down the rhetoric? Does that do anything? Yeah. So there are elections in January. William Lai is the DPP candidate. The polls now suggest still that if the elections were held today, the DPP would win. DPP is kind of the most significant Taiwan nationalist party. This is the Shanghai Shack Party, correct? That's the KMT. KMT, okay. Yeah. So there have been some worries that some within the DPP might push for something other than the status quo, independence, a two-China policy. Because, you know, when you look at the polls in Taiwan, there is a steady drumbeat, stronger Taiwan national identity. I mean, that is clear in the polls. They view themselves as a separate nation from China. And that's been true over the last several years of polls. But I think the primary concern would be changing the status quo. Anything that smacks of independence at this point would be very provocative, particularly if Lai wins the election, steady hand, as we've seen with President Tsai, no indications of independence, that would be helpful. One other thing, Andrew, that's interesting that came out of that discussion is how closely Taiwan leaders are watching the war in Ukraine. And we heard it from every single person we spoke to across senior leadership of Taiwan's national security establishment, even all the presidential candidates, they said categorically that they are concerned about flagging U.S. aid to Ukraine, which would have devastating repercussions across the Indo-Pacific. You know, I've heard it from senior officials in Australia, Japan, and in South Korea. Taiwan is interesting because that is the hottest flashpoint within Asia right now. It's probably the one area where most people assess there could be a war. They argued categorically that if the U.S. withdrew, significantly withdrew aid, Russia were to start making advances on the battlefield, that would gut deterrence in Asia, embolden China, and weaken views of U.S. resolve. 
devastating consequences. So in your judgment, if the United States were to walk away somewhat from Ukraine in terms of aid, in terms of support, that would be dual harm for us? It would hurt our abilities to operate in Asia and our abilities to operate in Europe? Is that what I'm hearing you say? I think what we'd see on the battlefield in Ukraine is probably Russian advances because we've seen the Russians reaching out to and getting help from their industrial base, from the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, actually even the Indians for that matter to some degree. And so if we were to see a decrease in U.S aid and European aid for that matter to Ukraine, then the balance of power shifts dramatically in favor of Russia. And in Asia, you'd almost certainly see Russian advances on the battlefield in Ukraine. In the Asian context, I think it would seriously raise credibility questions about the U.S. We heard it from senior Japanese leaders on the back end of the trip that it would also cause extraordinary concerns in Japan. There's an underlying discussion about whether countries like South Korea and Japan at some point might get a nuclear weapon if the U.S. is not going to be there to defend themselves with a giant China that's overshadowing them. So it has all kinds of implications. It's an incredible set of circumstances. Seth, let me ask you this. Were there any conversations while you were in Taiwan about China's recent economic downturn and how it might affect Taiwan? Lots of discussion. I think the vast majority of academics, senior policymakers, and even economists and investors that we talked to had two rough comments. One is that it is challenging to assess the Chinese market because the government has become increasingly opaque and much less transparent about numbers and is falsifying data. So you can't take a lot that the Chinese government has acknowledged or provided publicly on its face. So it's difficult to assess the economic situation. Nevertheless, we spoke to a number of people that had either gone back and forth on business or had been in constant communication with Taiwan business people or even Chinese business people that have gone back and forth. And the strong assessment was that the Chinese economy is in its worst shape in a long time. So uh, lots of concerns. What's interesting, Andrew, is I think that led to two potential paths. One is that over the next year or two, China really does have to focus on addressing its problems at home, particularly its economy. Number two is that to make up for the problems at home, China becomes more risk tolerant abroad. I don't know what the answer is there, but I mean, the Chinese economic problems have raised lots of questions about what the implications of foreign policy activity. All right. So finally, Seth, on Taiwan, what should we be watching for regarding the future of U.S.-Taiwan cooperation? I think we should be watching a few things. One is who wins the election and how do both U.S. and Taiwan officials attempt to preserve the status quo and keep an important, strong hand on the rudder so that we don't end up in a war. So that's one is election-related activity. The second is I think the U.S. has to be very careful on unnecessarily provoking China with a major visit, for example, before or just after the elections. There'll be an inauguration in the summer of 2024. So that interim period, I think, is going to be fraught with opportunities, mines, for that matter, in a sense. So I, I think there needs to be a very steady hand in not provoking China during this period. But I think this question over the long run is, how does the U.S. better provide help to Taiwan to defend itself? Taiwan is a democratic island. It's population increasingly feels independent. It's got a strong nationalist identity. And I think it's important to support 
Taiwan and to help it deter a Chinese invasion. It will be a bit of a balancing act for how to provide aid and weapons to Taiwan and at the same time not trigger a war, a preventive or even a preemptive Chinese war. Seth, the end of your trip, you guys swung over to Japan. Tell me what you learned there. We went down to 7th Fleet, the headquarters of the U.S. Navy in that region. We boarded and talked to individuals on U.S. ships, including the U.S. aircraft carrier, the Ronald Reagan. We also got on board of a virtually brand new uh, Japanese frigate. There are a couple of things that were big takeaways. One is Japan is a major ally of the United States. I think it became increasingly clear when you go back to your World War II era where we fought each other in those same locations. We are very close allies. We train together. We exercise together. We would fight together if we had to. There are no questions in my mind on Japanese will to fight if that's what it came to. So just the depth of the political, economic, and military relationship was very strong. The second is U.S. plays a critical role in Asia. The Japanese want the U.S., to be there. You really see how important the U.S. role is in key regions to balance against Chinese power. It was a very positive end of the trip just in understanding the U.S. role in the region and its relationship with Japan. Seth, as always, thank you for coming on and helping us understand these issues just a little bit better. Thanks, Andrew. You are the best host I have ever, uh, <laughs> I've ever had interview me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 